Welcome back to another episode of NPMA's Bug Bites, a nerdy news podcast where three entomologists with the National Pest Management Association compete to see who can do the best job at covering a recent science discovery or a news headline. I'm one of your co-hosts, Brittany Campbell, and I am joined today by my co-hosts, Dr. Jim Fredericks and Dr. Mike Bentley. And I'm super excited to be joined by our special guest judge, Joelle Nolasco with Newborn Pest Control. Joelle, it's awesome. It is so great to have you here with us today. And I really appreciate you agreeing to being subjected to this. Um, it's it's going to be a wild ride, so buckle up. But before we get started, Joelle, uh, I do want you to tell us a little bit and our listeners a little bit about yourself, your company, where you're located, and how you found your way into the pest control industry. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you for the invite. Uh, it is an honor to be here, and I am excited. Um, they usually say that uh, a measure of how good you are, right, as a teacher or how smart you are is if you can explain it to, you know, the youngest person. I guess in this case, the dumbest person. So <laughs> I will be the best meter you guys can have right so if i can understand what you guys are talking about then you guys are doing a phenomenal job right well you're gonna um, learn really quickly you are the smartest person in this podcast right now buddy <laughs> <laughs> we'll see about that well I, like you said my name is joel nolasco i am a new york native i was born and raised uh in the city of new york i am uh, one of the owners of newborn press control it's a company based out of Mamaroneck, new york which is a suburb it's in westchester county which is one of the suburbs of new york city um, we do handle pest control services, both commercial and residential within the New York City boroughs um, and Westchester County as well. I've been in the business, I've been in the industry since about 2004, I would say. Um, I started off, um, I just stumbled across it. Like many of us have stumbled into the great business of pest control, right? I don't think any of us uh, grow up thinking, you know, when I, when I, when I grow up, I want to go into pest control, right? Um, but I stumbled across it and quickly realized that this is a phenomenal business and something that I wanted to be a part of. So my career started as a technician in Terminex, um, slowly moved up the ranks in Terminex just from different levels of technicians that they had handling different services until eventually me and my partner went off on our own. And we've been growing our business ever since then. Uh, as far as my involvement in the industry, like I said, it's an industry that I felt in love with and passionate about. So along with that, something that who I am, I've always wanted to be, I don't just want to be a passenger in the ride. I want to at least be the, co at least be the co-pilot, right? If I can't be the pilot, I at least want to be the co-pilot. So I decided to get myself involved because um, I figured that that would be the best way where I could possibly affect change, right? Um, in our industry. So owning a business is about affecting change. I mean, what we do as an industry and we take pride in it is about causing change. I mean, we help people with, in many cases, or in some cases, can be complex problems that they otherwise wouldn't be able to resolve on their own. So we come in as professionals and help them out, right? I create employment for my community. That's a way of giving back. And then once I was able to do that, I wanted to then positively affect change in our industry. And that's when I decided to start getting involved with the New York State Pest Management Association and the National Pest Management Association. Throughout my years, I moved up the ranks. I was the president of the New York State Pest Management Association. I am currently the chairperson of the Diversity Council. I'm the vice chair of the DEI task force. Uh, and I am also a board member of, of the National Pest Management Association board, which I am proud of. So it's a little bit about me. 
Man, so lots of free time is what you're saying, huh, Joe? Yeah, yeah, right. Um, you know, we know you're on the NPMA board. We know how involved you are with NPMA. And for that, we thank you because we know that every moment that you take to uh, to commit to your state association or the national association is time away from your business. So it's a it's a it's a it's a sacrifice of time, uh, but it's an investment in the future. And so we we definitely appreciate that. Um, you mentioned about the diversity council and the DEI uh, diversity, equity and inclusion Um program that NPMA is undertaking. Um, uh, our listeners, if you want to learn more about that, can visit the npmapestworld.org website where you'll be able to find some more information about all those really cool initiatives that we have going on. And thanks for your leadership on those um, on those programs as well, Joelle. It's my pleasure. Absolutely. Well, Joelle, like our guests that we've had on here, I'm always blown away hearing everyone's background to see uh, historically how you got into the industry and all of the things that you do. I know you and I work super closely on a lot of NPMA's programs, so we really appreciate your leadership and definitely inspiring. Um, but Joelle, now it's time for you oh to like nerd out. Should I have gotten coffee for this? I mean, everybody oh, else needs to have coffee. I should have gotten my husband to have my coffee ready. You need like a full jug of coffee. So you've already messed up, Joel. <laughs> so whoever can put Joel to sleep fastest. Loses. How about that? There you yeah. go. Yeah, I, I, I think that uh, he's going to quickly realize that he may have signed up for something that he didn't. Uh, he's not quite as excited about anymore. So. Well, here's what we'll do, Joel. I'll, I'll give you a quick rundown of kind of what the format's going to be for this. Um, so typically what we do is each one of us will take turns spending about five minutes and we put a timer on it to make sure we don't get too long winded, but we'll, we'll each take about five minutes to cover uh, what we found to be uh, our favorite science news article, publication or discovery that impacts the pest control industry over about the last month or so. Um, and then you as our special guest, get the honor of identifying who the individual was that did the best job of covering that. So basically who you stayed awake for that entire five minutes usually is the default winner. Um, all that we ask is that you don't tell us who second and third place are. We just wanna, in our minds, we're just going to assume that everybody was a close second um, and that it was difficult for you to say. I, I thought we were gonna do this pageant style, you know, second runner up goes first and then <clears> first <throat> runner up and then no, okay. Yeah, no, we yeah. don't want to know. We believe me. What Mike said is we it, it's so true. We we, we want to we, we will assume that there was a winner, but the other two were tied for a very, very, very close second place. Yeah. First loser. That's that's right. <laughs> that's right. And, that, and that's what we refer to each other as whenever somebody wins. You'll notice that they're a little more arrogant around the office for the next couple of weeks till the next episode rolls around. So Stop, um, sounds like you won last time, Mike. Unfortunately, man, I did not. So the way All that right. we. Yeah. So the way ah. that we. Yeah. So the, the order in which we go is whoever won last time gets to go first. Uh, so Brittany is going to be our first <clears throat> person to, to present their podcast. Um or their uh, summary. And then second and third place is determined by an intense game of rock, paper, scissors. Sometimes we are uh, organized enough to have that done before we record the podcast. Sometimes we are not. Today, we are not. So we are going I to be doing... I don't know 
why you always say we're organized and we do it prior to the show. I don't think we've ever actually done it. There was one episode where we did it prior to the show. So, (laughs) all right. Yeah. All right. So, Michael, since Brittany's the reigning nerd queen, uh, you and I are going to do rock, paper, scissors. So, you remember the rules, right? It's rock, paper, scissors, and shoot. And you will shoot on shoot, right? Yeah. Yeah. And make sure that you're, you're, hand is visible to camera but Brittany likes to it. keep it down here yeah, and yeah. kind of you know, all of a sudden it'll just <laughs> levitate up she, she's a big cheater joel so you big, gotta you gotta keep on her luckily she's not she's not participating this time so in new york if you aren't cheating you aren't trying that's gonna be our new motto for this show and i will tell you <laughs> Brittany has embraced that motto early on so lots of bribery and things like that so all right, <clears throat> all right ready, Jay, ready? yes all right Rock, One, two. paper, scissors. <laughs> Let's do a better <laughs> rhythm. <laughs> uh, right, this is an indication of how this episode's going to go. We are in trouble. All right, here we go. So are, right. are we doing rock, paper, scissors, shoot, or one, two, three, shoot? I, I guess always just, said rock, paper, just, scissors, shoot, but you can say whatever you like. I need I'll just say problem. it in my head. Ready? No, no. We're, we're going to do rock, paper, scissors, shoot. You ready? Right. Rock, rock, paper, paper scissors, scissors, shoot. shoot. It's out of the camera. <laughs> okay. I still got it wrong. I cheated I know, and I still I got said, it wrong. <laughs> yeah, you, you tried to pull a Britney on me. Yeah, for, for, for the audience out there that doesn't have the luxury of being able to watch what Jim just did, he literally threw his hand down below camera view so nobody could see it. But he just wasn't uh, wasn't unethical enough to, to try to cheat. So as Joel said, I, was, I right. was honest. Honesty, where I come from, honesty is the best policy, right? <laughs> yeah. All right. Oh, well, boy. what that means then is I get to decide where I'm going to go. And I'm going to go in third place. So I'll go last. So Brittany's going to go first, Jim will go second, and then I will go third. So, Dr. Campbell, do you uh, want to go ahead and lead us up? Well, here, Joel, and you have the opportunity to ask questions um, at any point in time after each one of us gives our summary. So after the summary's done, we'll throw it back to you. If you have any questions, great. If there's no questions, we can go on to the next summary. Sounds fine. Any questions? No, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to listen. All right. Hang on to your seat. Here it goes. All right, Brittany, you ready? Um, I'm ready. All righty. So, well, the title of my paper today is Human Skin Triglycerides Prevent Bedbugs Cymex Lectularius Arrestment. And this paper came out of the University of Kentucky. And so we all know the reasons that bedbugs are attracted to humans and the cues they use to find their human hosts, including human body odor, CO2, and heat. But one thing that we haven't really figured out is, and that we don't fully understand, is the reasons that bed bugs don't stay on humans to feed, like lice or ticks and other blood-feeding arthropods. While there's probably a lot of underlying reasons that could affect this bed bug behavior, uh, and probably has from an evolutionary standpoint, like the time needed for bed bugs to feed, their starvation status, and then access to a host. Because imagine, you know, bed bugs are really close to their hosts, hanging out in beds, and typically places where people are going to spend a lot of time. Uh, This paper actually discovered that there's certain components of human skin that can actually repel bed bugs. So not only attracting, but repelling bed bugs, causing them to see carburage in areas to hide away from their human blood meals after feeding. Now, human skin has several components and it's made up of a vast array of chemicals and compounds. Don't need to get into all of that. 
but one of the compounds in human skin is triglycerides or fats. The researchers of this paper wanted to test if the fatty components of human skin impacted bed bug behavior. So before you think the researchers went all Hannibal Lecter on people, they didn't have to chop people up. They did not actually remove pieces of their skin. What they did is they actually took several pieces of paper and rubbed it onto the skin of multiple different people of different ages, different ethnicities to make sure uh, there was no influence there. Then they tested how bed bugs responded to paper tents with just the lipids and clean paper. So in a large dish, what they did is they put these paper tents that had either human lipids or clean with no chemicals into a dish. And then they would wait three hours and then they would see where the bed bugs went to hang out. So were they staying in the, the lipid tent or the clean tent? And they found that the bed bugs did not sit on the paper tents that had lipids on them or under those tents. And they actually refused to stay on those tents that had lipids. So actually showing that bed bugs were repelled by these chemicals. So what does this mean other than the fact that it's really interesting that bed bugs use human odor as both a cue to feed on someone, but then not to stay around and hang out on them like other arthropods. Uh, it's the fact that this research can be used as a possible management technique if these compounds have repellent properties like DEET and actually work on bed bugs. Uh, since you know there's not actually a repellent on the market for bed bugs, this would be phenomenal and an awesome discovery if we figured out that these chemicals could repel bed bugs regardless of how hungry they were. Uh, but as typical with a lot of research, this is a discovery, a new discovery. It's the first step. And there's a lot of other questions that need to be answered um, before we can actually figure out the use of this research. And that is it. Mm, interesting. So can I ask some questions? You sure can. Did they determine, uh, you said they collected samples from different people, different races and different ethnicities. Uh, did that have an effect on the bad books? Because if I'm not mistaken, based on what we eat culturally, like in other things, if you eat certain foods, it kind of, you can smell it off of somebody's pores, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I know in this case, it wasn't anything about scent. It was more just about the triglycerides that come off the skin. But I'm sure that that would have something to do most of, depending on the culture, some people tend to eat food that are a lot fattier than they know. Exactly. And multiple reasons, you know, age two can impact the components of your skin, of course, change over time. So excellent question. And what the researchers found, I mean, they looked at ages 25 to 50, multiple ethnicities, and the triglycerides don't really seem to vary, at least that part of human skin doesn't vary among age and ethnicity, and it had zero impact. Like, regardless of what person they collected these lipid, uh, fatty, you know, components from, bed bugs hated them regardless. All right. Now, part of my ignorance, but when I think of, you know, humans and fatty, right, I think of weight, right, and the fluctuation in people's weight. And there are those that uh, have a high body fat, right, and those that have a very low body fat. Uh, did that have a role in it? So to in layman's term, you know, um, did the bed bugs like the fat person more or less? 
<laughs> so I, I don't think the researchers technically tested that. They didn't say anything about um, measuring the person's weight, but this is kind of, while it's like fatty components of skin, it's different than like the fat in your body. Uh, so where are they, the components of these fats in your human skin come from? Cause we all have like glands. I mean, I'm a very oily person. So like literally the lipids from this is coming from like the outer surface of the skin. Cause they just think they just kind of like rub the outside. So that's from like the glands on your skin. So it's going to be kind of, um, a different fatty component. Joelle is coming out swinging with these questions. I'm already starting to sweat. <laughs> I am like super sweaty and- I, I, I forgot to mention, I am a little bit of a nerd. I like this stuff. So I don't know if I'm gonna go to sleep. Uh, I think this is fun. <laughs> awesome. Right, well, I promise you this next one might put you to sleep. I'll take uh, it as a challenge. All right, Joelle, um, the paper that I chose this week is titled, uh, the common bed bug does not commonly use canines and felines as a host in low-income high-rise apartments. The work here was performed by Marlo Black, who is a student at the University of Tennessee, along with others, uh, including her advisors, Dr. Rebecca trout Frizel and Dr. Karen Vale, who names you probably recognize because they're friends of NPMA and frequent speakers at our educational events and conferences. Now, before we really get into this thing, um, in terms of the research, I have, I have a confession to make. I, I, I realized after I was reading this that I have often made um, one statement in particular to pest management professionals and consumers without knowing all the facts behind the statement. So I've been saying this for years. I, I, I'll get the question, will bed bugs feed on my pets? And typically I personally respond by saying that although they can, they don't prefer to feed on dogs and cats if humans are available. I mean, I've probably said it a hundred times and I so don't I. know if you said that too. Yeah. I, I, but I don't know where I learned it or if it is actually true. Um, so according to the authors of this paper, it's well established that bed bugs will feed on a whole bunch of warm blooded animals, including humans, bats, poultry and rabbits. But no research has ever investigated if bed bugs can feed on pets. So I am not quite sure why I have been saying this to people for years. So. I double checked some of the old sources like uh, Usinger's uh, 1966 monograph for the Semicity. Um, and it does state in that publication that in 1918, researchers determined that bed bugs will feed on geckos, chameleons, and frogs. And they concluded that bed bugs were not attracted by heat alone because reptiles and amphibians are cold blooded. And then they also uh, uh, cite another paper. Um, in Usinger's monograph in 1937 of a research paper that bed bugs um, fed from uh, fed on blood from mice, birds, and people, and then they um, measured the amount of eggs that these bed bugs would would lay, and it turned out that they showed that bed bugs that fed on mouse blood actually laid the most eggs, and human uh, fed uh, or human blood fed bugs laid the least amount of eggs. But despite my searching, I couldn't find any word on dogs and cats. So 
I checked the classic um, Pinto, Cooper, and Kraft bedbug handbook that was published in 2007. I figured, all right, well, these were old publications. Maybe something that's newer will, uh, will, will give me the information I'm looking for. And there it was in all its glory right there on page 50. There's a call out box and it says alternate host for bedbugs. And in this box, they listed mice, songbirds, rabbits, guinea pigs, rats, bats, gerbils, poultry, pet birds, chinchillas, pigeons, ferret, hamsters, and fanfare, dogs, and cats. Um, but I then read the fine print in the textbook, and, and it really wasn't very fine. It said um, alternate hosts that have been verified. That's a listing of alternate hosts that have been verified or reported anecdotally including the following and then they made that list so i'm thinking reported anecdotally for for all i know i might have been the one that reported it to larry pinto <laughs> starting like this vicious circle of bed bug misinformation but <clears throat> that has nothing to do with this paper um, this paper looked at two things it looked at how long could host dna be detected in a bed bug following a blood meal that is um, if a if a bug feeds on a person or an animal, how long can they how long can that DNA from that host be detected? And two, um, what kinds of DNA could be identified in field collected uh, bed bugs from apartments that contain dogs and cats? So to answer the first question, the bed bugs uh, they had bed bugs that were reared in the laboratory, and those bugs were fed either human, feline, canine, or rabbit blood. Then they were randomly tested at various days uh, to look for the DNA markers from each of those hosts. And what they found was that they were able to discern um, the host, uh, you know, what the species of the host was up to 21 days after, um, after, uh, after feeding. So that's kind of cool. They can detect it for three weeks after a meal. They had no more food after that, um, what it was that they ate. Now, they also then went to um, high-rise, low-income apartments, and uh, they collected bedbugs from two, they actually collected bedbugs from 12 different apartments, total of 228 bedbugs were collected, and these apartments had pets, six of them had dogs, five of the apartments had cats, one had both. Um, the bed bugs were preserved in alcohol, brought back to the laboratory, and then tested for the presence of cat, dog, and human DNA markers. And, uh, and what they found was that human DNA was found in 69.3% of the samples. Canine DNA uh, was found in only 3% of the samples, total of seven bugs. And cat DNA was found in only one single bed bug, um, which is 0.4% of those samples. And so ultimately, you know, they concluded was that bed bugs are most commonly feeding on humans and only uh, rarely feeding on dogs and cats. So from my point of view, um, it's a lesson learned. It's a first of all, it's a good idea to check your facts once in a while. Actually fact check yourself. Make sure that the knowledge nuggets that you're freely sharing with your clients or your friends are actually based on fact. And in this case, my hunch was borne out by the research and that bed bugs uh, can feed on dogs and cats, but they prefer when given a choice to, to feed on human hosts. So there you have it. 
All right. Does does he lose points for going over the time? I mean, am I supposed to keep tabs of this stuff? How far was I over? Uh, six minutes and 40 seconds is what I got. And I paused it whenever you lost audio. That's a good yeah. story, though. It was, it was a, a good, good story. story. It was I a 10-minute story, but it was a good story. I did tell you about my, my literature <laughs> search. I got the books <laughs> right here. Hey, right there. <laughs> Look at that. Autograph for the synicity. I had to read this. He even, he even has bookmarks on him. He, he has a bookmark. Look at that. I don't fool around. I'm a, I'm gonna, <laughs> I, I, not only do I play an entomologist on television, I got the degrees on the wall there to back it up. There you go. All right. I have some questions. All right. I have no so, answers. In the latter part of, of you know, your talk, you were sharing the numbers, right? And you were saying that 69% of the bed bugs fed on human, uh, about seven on canine and about 0.4 on phenine. What happened to the missing numbers? I mean, I know you guys do yeah. science and maybe not math, but where's the rest of the numbers to get to 100? I am no mathematician, but I can give you some uh, hazy, foggy math that'll get you to the right place. Because, yeah, that's always the one thing you look at. Like, do these numbers add up to 100%? So some bed bugs had both cat and dog, okay. right? Some okay. had cat, dog, human, um, and... I think like 36% of the samples had no detectable DNA. Um, okay. And so that would, that would indicate that they hadn't fed recently, right? They didn't have any human, they didn't have any host DNA. So they hadn't fed recently. The first part of the research in, um, in, in book one of my discussion today was that, you know, they could detect it for up to 21 days. So if they fed, you know, more than three weeks ago, maybe there was no detectable DNA left in their gut. Those that fed on multiple hosts, Right. Were they able to detect uh, the DNA of, you know, both human and canine or just the last one they found? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Whatever was present, they'll be able to detect the markers okay. from. So if it was they'll be able to tell like this bed bug fed on canine and and dogs, but no humans and vice versa right? or all three or whatever. Um, but yeah, it's awesome questions. And, uh, I mean, I, th I think it was great. I think they were trying to answer a question, but sometimes in answering a question, you create more questions. So I think that's what it did. And that's the beauty we're of fascinating. research. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. I, I think it's really neat too how polite Joel is whenever he like throws those subtle digs out. Like for example, when he started off Jim and said, you know, the second half of your discussion, which basically he was like, you know, in chapter 11 of your discussion. I mean, the part <laughs> after the intermission. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's what I meant. I, I was being courteous when my mic went out like that. Um, I was just giving <laughs> you guys a chance to get up and get a cup of coffee and stretch your legs. Yeah, that right. was nice. That was nice. All right, Mike. All right. Well, then we'll roll into the third and final uh, summary here. So, um, and we always start our timer after we read the title. So this paper that I'm going to present uh, was published in September of 2021. So just a few weeks ago in the Journal of Medical Entomology, by Abdullah Alamar and Barry Alto with University of Florida's Florida Medical Entomology Laboratory, which fun fact for everybody that has nothing to do with this publication, I grew up right down the road from this place. So really cool to see uh, some research coming out of there. Uh, the title for the publication that I'm going to be presenting on is the evaluation of pyroproxifen effects on Aedes aegypti and predatory mosquito Toxoranachides reticulus. Nope. Rutilis, sorry. 
Alright, so mosquitoes are responsible for spreading a long list of deadly diseases, including malaria, dengue, West Nile virus, and Zika, just to name a few. While we're fortunate here in the U.S. to not face the full list of mosquito-borne diseases that many other countries around the world regularly contend with, we do have a number of competent mosquito species that can't in the United States that are capable of vectoring many of these serious illnesses. And one of those species in particular is a commonly encountered species, Aedes aegypti, also known as the yellow fever mosquito. It's a small black and white daytime biting mosquito capable of spreading a handful of deadly diseases, including dengue, Zika, and of course, yellow fever. Belongs to a group of mosquitoes that we call container breeding mosquitoes because females search out small water holding containers to lay their eggs. There's plenty of natural containers out there, things like tree holes and even the base of some plants. But there are plenty of man-made containers as well, like bird baths, garbage can lids, and just about anything that will hold about an inch of water. This is often why residential backyards become a prime breeding site for this mosquito species. And our common control methods for Aedes aegypti historically include things like adulticides in combination with larvicides that can be applied to these water holding containers. But in addition to chemical controls, there are some <clears throat> naturally occurring biological control agents that help to control mortality, uh, contribute to mortality. One example of this is, believe it or not, another mosquito species that belongs to the genus Toxorhinochides. They're also known as the elephant mosquitoes. And this is absolutely hands down, probably one of the coolest mosquito species that are out there, this group of mosquitoes. The genus um, is, first off, they're huge. That's why they call them elephant mosquitoes. They're covered in iridescent scales that make them look like they're decorated with tiny metallic jewels. It's kind of something you have to see to believe. It's, these things are absolutely amazing. Um, they're also the only group of mosquitoes that don't feed on blood. Now, female mosquitoes typically have to feed on blood in order to get enough nutrition to satisfy egg development, but not Toxorhinochides. See, this species actually gets all of their nutrition that they need to develop their eggs as larvae, and they do that by being predators of other mosquito larvae. And it's this behavior that makes them effective and important biological control agents for a lot of other mosquito species because they also like to live in these water holding containers. So when developing larvicides that target aquatic breeding sites, it's really important for researchers to also consider impacts on other beneficial um, organisms just like this, which brings us to this paper. So researchers from the Florida Medical Entomology Lab wanted to measure the effects of an insecticide used as a larvicide, uh, pyroproxifen, uh, also known as PPF, abbreviated, on Aedes aegypti, as well as its potential impacts on Toxorhinochides species that are known to prey on Aedes aegypti. PPF is an insect growth regulator, um, also known as an IGR, uh, that kills mosquitoes by disrupting their life cycle. Now, the insecticide actually traps the mosquitoes in the pupil stage, so it prevents them from emerging as an adult. Now, IGRs like uh, PPF are excellent tools in the fight against mosquitoes because they're low toxicity to most non-target organisms. And this specific IGR is particularly appealing because it doesn't impact the mosquito until it reaches the pupil stage, which is a really important detail because that means it allows mosquito larvae to survive. That's important because that means that there's still food available for important mosquito predators like the Toxorhinochides. Uh, but since Toxorhinochides is also a mosquito, it's not entirely clear what the impacts would be um, on Toxorhinochides if they would suffer from the same lethal effects of exposure to PPF at similar concentrations that would impact the Aedes aegypti. 
So researchers set out to measure what those effects would be. They did this doing two separate studies. They exposed mosquito larvae of both species to PPF at a range of different concentrations, starting from zero and working all the way up through. On the first study, they measured what the total number of adults would be to emerge from both species at a bunch of different concentrations. And then the second study was to look at, they measured lifespan and weight of the adult mosquitoes that emerged to get an idea of what potential longer uh, negative impacts could be on survivorship. What they found was that the concentration of PPF uh, that would be high enough to inhibit 50 to 90% of Aedes aegypti adults had a negligible impact on adult emergence and lifespan of Toxorhinochides species that was used in the study, and that PPF had no effect on adult weight for either species. So one theory offered from the researchers to support why the Toxorhinochides mosquitoes were less impacted at the same concentrations is intuitively due to the fact that they're just simply larger. Um, so, uh, you know, larger bodied insects would probably require higher concentrations to suffer from the same effects, meaning that lower concentrations would have a greater impact on these smaller Aedes aegypti larvae. So while there's still some more questions to address surrounding PPF, the findings of this study support previous research that looked at similar questions addressed for PPF have the potential to be an effective tool in the fight against Aedes aegypti. That is my summary. Joel, do you have any questions? You were 17 you seconds over. Just want to know <laughs> uh, that. I have, I have 15 seconds over, but um, look, sometimes hey, when you've got a paper. Was over this, at all? Was no, she was like three no. and a half minutes. But you know, I mean, I, you know, when you're covering a paper like this, I mean, you've got to, you know, Jim knows you, you got you got to bring a little bit to the paper. I mean, it's something of this magnitude. It's really important to talk about. I have to be honest. I thought I was way under, and at one point, I started stretching mine. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I have questions, right? With the um, this is interesting. To be honest with you, I've never heard of the elephant mosquito. It's not a species that we would deal with in the Northeast. Um, is this something that we deal with in North America at all? Yeah, so there's a bunch of different species that are that are found uh, pretty much you know around the world. Um, so different species will uh, have different uh, uh, developmental life cycles and breeding life cycles and things like that. So this one specific species they looked at uh, is a species that's commonly found in tree holes, natural water holding containers, and things like that. Um, so that's why they chose this species. It's one that actively and normally preys on Aedes aegypti because they both mosquito species um, use the same breeding sites. Uh, different species uh, may utilize other breeding sites. Another really cool thing about Toxoronychites mosquitoes, by the way, like I said, these are hands down, like I, I could have spent an entire five minutes talking about them. Um, one strategy for getting their eggs into these tree holes is they will actually lay their egg and then flick the egg into a tree hole using their tarsi like they're they're a wild group of mosquitoes they're really cool they lay it and then they like punt it into the puddle yes yeah so because a lot of times there's you know some of these tree holes that are used for mosquito breeding sites can be things like um you know holes will develop in chambers for bamboo for example so for them to be able to get their egg into that small entrance their body is too big to fit but they can flick an egg in there it's crazy so so um I would assume since they can't feed, can they feed? So they don't feed at all as adults. As adults, so they're they have a proboscis just like mosquitoes do, but the proboscis is kind of recurved. It's huge and it curves back. Uh, it allows them to be able to feed on nectar for flowers and plants and things. So they're actually a low-level like pollinator as well. Okay. 
they they really like peanuts as a treat. Um, <laughs> yes. they and they're scared them. of mice. They and they're scared of mice. <laughs> All right. So now to ask you some of those questions that you probably won't have an answer to because you didn't write the paper, right? Kind of like I subjected Brittany and Jim to, right? Uh, <laughs> the, uh, the, was there, I mean, as far as just a water hole, I mean, I mean, I think a water hole is just a water hole, right? Uh, if you just look at it from the outside, but I'm sure that there are some effects on where that water hole is. I mean, you use bamboo as one, right? Um, there are some areas where there may be a canal and the water kind of splashes over into some sort of a small area and it becomes a water container for them. Was there any preference on where that water hole was for the development of either the Aedes aegypti or the effectiveness of the elephant mosquito in targeting the larvae? So this study in particular did not look at whether there was a preference, but it's well documented that there's a lot of factors that contribute to how mosquitoes will locate different water holding containers or preferred breeding sites. And for both of these mosquito species, particularly for Aedes aegypti and Aedes alpopictus, there's been a ton of research looking at what attracts them to a water holding container. And a lot of times it's, um, yeah, it's stagnant water that has organic matter like falling leaves and things like that. So they've done studies that look at if it, if it makes a difference, if there's oak leaves in the water versus um, you know, different tree leaves that, from different species of trees, pine needles, those sorts of things. And all of these different things change the volatiles that come off of the water. And uh, they believe that these volatiles are what attracts those container breeding mosquitoes to different water holding containers. And there's a lot of other factors that go into it too. But so they do know that there are variables and cues that they, that they hone in on to help identify viable breeding sites. Uh, these water holding containers, both, both species. So would any of those factors that affect the, you know, which side is preferred, um, would it negatively affect the elephant mosquito from entering that area? So if, if, for example, if pine needles are something that's preferred by the Aedes aegypti, you know, pine needles may negatively, you know, may just repel the elephant mosquito, while if it's oak leaves, they both like it. Yeah. Is there any of that? Um, I, I mean, I would have to imagine that because the survival strategy of the Toxorhinochides species here is to find a water holding site that has Aedes aegypti mosquitoes in it, that they're both probably going to be honing in on those same cues. I believe that they both okay. use very similar variables to kind of identify what's viable because if Toxorhinochides guesses the wrong water holding site, then it's going to end up putting an egg in an area and hatching and larvae are going to emerge that have nothing to eat. So they're probably using the same host cues or uh, water holding container cues to those volatiles and things to help find the same breeding sites. Awesome. Why is Jim smiling? Because <laughs> I'm just thinking here, you know, um, Mike and Brittany and I thought we had it tough when we defended our dissertations back in graduate school. And this is like very much the same feeling. Um, <laughs> I recalled uh, distinctly that the professors that were on my committee, what they would do is they'd ask you a question and then you'd, you'd answer the question and they'd ask you another question. And they would just keep asking questions limit of your knowledge. And that's what you're doing here. You're just like, how, how far can I go? Let's how far can I go until finally each one of us has been like, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Eat me, Joel. I don't know. You know, I can. 
But this was this was really cool. Mike and Brittany, we definitely have to do a better job of vetting the IQ of our um, of our guests. Right. Because um, I thought it, I thought our other guests were tough. Jo- Joelle's asked some really great questions. Um, we're running out of time now, but it, it was really fun for me to watch Brittany and Mike squirm. Yes, it was extra fun to have to watch you, Joel, do it to them. So, thank you for joining us today. Um, it really was uh, it really was a pleasure and a treat. Well, look, I'm I'm not trying to rush our conversation here by any means, but I am on the edge of my seat here. Um, I am dying to know who is going to be crowned the uh, next king or queen of uh, the nerds here, uh, Joel. So, have you, uh, have right. you put some thought into it? Who 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 gets the I, uh, crown? I have. I thought I thought I, you know, I thought I had given the crown already since before we started. I was like, all right, I know who like, you know, my favorite people are. Right. And and there's some favoritism here. And I thought that that was going to happen. Right. Um, just because that's how life is. You know, it's not always about what you know, but who you know. Right. Um, but that was very difficult because I know all three of you and I connect with all three of you at a different level. So I couldn't really do that. Right. Uh, so that sucks. But as Jim alluded to earlier, right, this is me trying to get somebody to say, that's it. I tapped out. Uh, and the only person that didn't tap out was Mike. Even if he made it up, he didn't tap out. But I have to give it to Mike. He is literally yeah. the, the king of <laughs> king of BS. You get the BS crown hey, today. Hey, no, 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 no. My master's is in medical and veterinary entomology. I, I worked on mosquitoes. He was literally <laughs> asking questions about things that me or my colleagues were working on in grad school. So this was great. And I could have been making it up. I knew no one else on this call was a <laughs> mosquito expert. So <laughs> be careful as you learn from mine. You could be making it, you could literally be making up facts and telling people that like well, things that are unknown to science. Well, what I learned, Jim, was yeah, absolutely. What I learned, Jim, was that uh, I, I can't take your anecdotes as truths. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's a it's like a coin flip with me whether you get the truth or not in terms of scientific facts. You know, I say honesty is the best policy, but like if I believe I'm being honest, then I guess I'm being honest, right? That's true. So, I mean, I hope that before you go on national TV, you make sure that the stuff you say on national TV is actually right. Oh yeah, of course. Oh, okay, cool. All the time. <laughs> Oh, I, you know what, Jim? I hope that most that people listen to this and, and get intrigued by uh, what you guys do and the, and the work that people are putting out there. I know I mentioned the Pest Management Foundation earlier, right? Kind of threw it in there. But honestly, after hearing you guys speak and, and being part of the Pest Management Foundation uh, events this October at Pest World, uh, it kind of showed a, a new light to it and, and the importance of being part of that. And, and, you know, the benefit that good research and well thought out research can generate for our industry. Um, you know, and as they say, you know, we're protectors of public health. I mean, the, the two subjects, I mean, we spoke about uh, mosquitoes and bed bugs. Those are both public health issues. Um, and that's a testament to it. So I hope that the Pest Management Foundation continue to grow so that we can continue to support research like this that will ultimately positively affect change uh, in the world and in our communities, as I said, when I began. So thank you guys for having me on. This was an amazing time. Here, here. Thank, thank you, you Joel. Joel. And if our listeners want to learn more about the Pest Management Foundation, they can do that at 
npmafoundation.org. Well, that's a wrap for another episode of NPMA's Bug Bites podcast. If you're interested in hearing more about any of the research that we discussed today, be sure to check out our Pestology blog at npmapestology.com. And also be sure to subscribe and like the podcast to make sure you don't miss the release of another episode. Thanks again for joining us and we'll catch you next time. MPMA Bug Bites is the industry source for the latest in science, news, and pest control research. It's brought to you by the National Pest Management Association. You can find links to the science discussed in this episode, as well as technical and business resources, training opportunities, and information about careers in pest control by visiting npmapestworld.org.